Hey, I've been asked to talk about critical race theory today from a biblical perspective, which is going to include all kinds of, of words that are floating around these days, um, social justice, marginalization, systemic racism, structural injustice, uh, whiteness, wokeness, all these words that I assume that you've heard that set off car alarms when you hear them. Uh, those words we want to address. So, um, just make sure it's not mine. Okay, fine. I want to check to see if it's yours. You can turn it off. Thank you. Um, just, and again, a summary. We'll get to a better definition, but let's just summarize, because we're going to talk about CRT, critical race theory, and all these words that kind of go under the umbrella of CRT, just a surface, quick, general definition. The claim is basically that America uh, is a white, racist society, that whites are racist. And I put that in quotation marks, as you'll see, uh, because racism is no longer an individual sin or individual problem or uh, lack of virtue. It's a societal, cultural reality. It's not personal. The old definition was... Uh, if you as a person have negative prejudgments, you see someone and you say, based on how you look, what your background is, how much melanin you have in your skin, I'm going to prejudge you and think negatively about you because your ethnic or surface differences, we used to call that uh, racism or, or the other way around, the person who has a prideful ethnic superiority, the way I look, the group that I'm a part of, ethnically, I then feel better than you. Uh, that was the old definition uh, of racism. The new definition of racism, and I literally mean this, they've changed the definitions in American English dictionaries. Uh, now it is about white uh, oppressive power structures. So the uh, society that we live in, they say, is uh, tilted toward, based upon, founded on, uh, you're benefiting from uh, the, the white superiority of this culture, and that is built into the structure. So no one in every individual in the nation can be absolutely free of negative prejudgments or prideful ethnic superiority, and you still uh, live in a racist nation uh, because racism is no longer an individual sin. It is now a cultural uh, structure. It's about how things uh, have unfolded in our nation and values uh, and uh, advantages that you have because of the of the uh, color of your skin. And I guess the question would be, because you hear a lot of this on talk radio or your, your podcasts or political discussions, and the question would be, why should a Bible church like this address this uh, topic? Why are we here talking about it? Why have I preached uh, to our teenagers on this topic? Why have I addressed our pastors and staff on this issue? Uh, why are we spending time talking about it? Well, because it makes biblical and theological claims. That's why we need to talk about it as Christians at a Bible church, and you as men leading your children, leading your wives in your homes, having an influence in your businesses. Uh, you need to think this through because as a Christian, they're making claims about what, what they think the Bible says and what theologically uh, is uh, true. Uh, we'll see this man later, James Cohn, who was a big uh, advocate of uh, this whole line of thinking, he says there is then a desperate need for a black theology, a theology whose sole purpose is to apply the freeing power of the gospel to black people under white oppression. 
Uh, this said years ago has now become the norm that what we need is a theological grid to think through, to take the Bible, understand it as something that needs to be seen through a lens of uh, someone's ethnicity, and uh, we need to realize the structures of our culture, uh, which is mostly America, but Western culture in general, but mostly America. We need to understand the Bible and articulate our theology through that lens. And that, of course, is a call to see theology, which is what we're all about as Christians, to see it differently. And uh, plenty of Christian publishers uh, publishing books, and uh, Jamar Tisby is one of them, who's uh, very active and well-received in Christian communities, published by uh, mainline Christian um, uh, publishers uh, in an interview recently to Kay Warren, uh, Rick's uh, wife over here, miles away at, at Saddleback. He makes the claim to Kay as she nods through this interview saying, uh, Tisby says, your church should have a racial justice statement which is focused on race, which seems to make sense. Uh, it should be part of your new members class, right? Uh, and when you sign up for this congregation, he says, this is what you should tell everyone that is going to join your church. You're signing up to be a part of racial justice. And if that's not for you, right, uh, then this church is not for you. So the idea of you coming to a church, if it's a Christian church, uh, the movement now is, and catching on in large churches that we function in the shadow of here in South Orange County, uh, the idea is you've got to be a part of what we're doing here to fix a problem. And this is about, church. if you're not part of this, if you don't view this the way that we do, you shouldn't be in this church. Uh, well, you know, we're not a part of Saddleback. We're part of the new reform movement. You know, we, we follow guys like Matt Chandler. Well, this is what guys like Matt Chandler are saying these days. Systemic racism can't even be seen by the people that are in the system. So you say, well, I don't think I'm racist, and I don't think I'm part of a racist system. Okay, well, Matt Chandler would say, You're, you can't even see that. Uh, like the priests that were giving terrible sacrifices at the temple in the Old Testament. He says, gosh, which I don't prefer you use that word, which is a soft way of using God's name in vain, but that's not what I'm here to teach about. Gosh, he says, the Bible vanished for a few hundred years until Josiah... Um, and them found it in the temple. There was no way for them to even know uh, that what they were doing was wicked in God's sight. So here's a condemnation from a white pastor, or influential pastor in northern Dallas, who's telling you that what you have going on in your life and in the world in which you live, the culture in which you live, not the world, the culture in which you live, is something uh, wrong. He calls it systemic racism, the words of CRT, uh, and you are um, part of it. You don't even know you're a part of it. And of course, you know, we had to discover the Bible in Josiah's day to even know that what we were doing was wicked. So this, these guys have come out now within circles and churches that you would send your friends to if they lived in North Dallas. They should go to Matt Chandler's church saying, okay, we've got a problem. It needs to be uncovered. You don't even know you have the problem. Uh, and it's, uh, it's characterized here by the word wicked, something wicked going on. Uh, I mean, I have much hope for Andy Stanley, but Andy Stanley has a big influence in, in Christian culture. He says, uh, you have to offend white people with this topic of racism to get their attention. You need to offend them. We need to offend people that come to church. If they're white, you need to offend them. No white person really thinks they're racist, right? They don't have any pre negative prejudgments about people with different ethnicities, if they don't have any prideful superiority about their, the level of melanin in their skin, uh, uh, well, you know, they think they're not racist. Uh, well, they don't even think they're prejudiced. Well, virtually no white man thinks they are guilty, right? It's not enough uh, to, for you have to push and push and push and push to the point where they say, hey, wait a minute, 
uh, I think you're pushing an agenda. Well, then finally you're listening. Now I can talk to you because you need to understand that you have a problem, you are racist, and we're going to explain that to you. And of course, this is being heralded from the pulpits uh, across the country in large movements and swaths of Christianity. So the goal now at church in the pulpits is to offend white people in many churches, uh, some in our neighborhoods, trying to get you to say, if you're white, you should be offended. I should be, you should see that I'm pushing agenda, an agenda because they believe this agenda is biblical. And uh, if, you finally, if you get offended by that, then finally you're starting to get the point. Uh, David Platt, I'm sure you've read some of his books if you are biblically uh, literate. He says, I want to sacrifice more of my preferences as a white pastor. And now he identifies himself by the color of his skin. I need to grow in my laying aside of preferences for members of this body. So I, 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 whatever preferences I have, I, I lay them aside because I want Christ to be exalted through increasing diversity in our leadership, in our membership. I do not want to speak on issues that are popular among white followers of Christ while staying, staying silent in the Bible on issues are what are important to non-white followers of Christ. So now, again, David Platt, a very important, influential, evangelical, young leader, saying we just now we need to think about your identity in terms of your skin tone and start to, and cultural background or, or ethnic background, and make these distinguishing um, uh, definitions within the church, and now I'm going to try and make adjustments. Because, of course, the culture is, the underlying assumption is uh, systemically racist, and churches need to lead, uh, certainly, in controlling their own environments uh, to fix the problem. And he thinks the solution is uh, purposeful diversity, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Tim Keller, New York. If you have the asset of white skin right now, okay, some of you do and some of you don't, right, this historical asset, then you actually have to say, I'm the product of and standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice, right? If you have any advantage, which I've been accused of in meetings and board meetings, uh, not here, but uh, in other organizations I'm a part of, that you have white privilege, that you have advantage. And if you have that advantage, then you're standing, I've heard this to my face, standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. So the Bible actually says, yes, you are involved in injustice, and, and, and even if you didn't actually do it. So, okay, now there's a condemnation of who I am because they believe that what I am Right, has become uh, uh, advantaged, and I got to where I got because of that advantage, and therefore I am guilty of injustice. And again, all of the dictionaries have helped us by redefining what this thing called injustice is, and racism is in particular. Uh, and, and Tim Keller is, is pushing this as well. Back to Demar Tisby, who's one of the very vocal uh, purveyors of this. Uh, now, you who believe in Jesus, enter into that prophetic role of forth-telling the truth, even the truth about racism and white supremacy. So if you're a Christian now, you've got a role to speak a message, right? Your prophetic role of forth-telling the truth, speak the truth, and your truth as a Christian that you need to pur purvey is that there's white racism and white supremacy. Jesus tells those who have bought into the myth of whiteness and superiority that you, too, are in need of a Savior. You need a Savior, a secondary kind of salvation. Now, if you've repented and believed this morning, then despite, uh, despise not the prophetic voice of the black experience. And so here is the uh, idea. Here it comes through Platt, white pastors like that, if you want to call them white, uh, uh, Keller and, and the rest. But now we have the Jamar Tisby's uh, uh, black guy, a black pastor saying, leader saying, this is your job now, to go out and be the prophetic voice of the black experience. 
This is all come to church. I just, I'm trying to say that's why we need to address this because you are, there are claims being made about you depending on your ethnic background and how you look. It indicts an ethnic group. And you've heard it over and over in some of these quotes, the whiteness, uh, the white privilege, they'll call it, that you have, because of how you look, and it doesn't even matter if you're not white, uh, as they would normally be called, but if you're perceived as white, just has to do with how you look, uh, then that makes you, as Keller said, guilty of injustice. You're standing on the shoulders of injustice, and therefore uh, you are guilty and sinful. And I just want to remind you what a huge thing that is. Right? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is what is being said. You are inherently guilty. You are sinful. You have a problem. This is an indictment about people on a moral level. These are moral words, right? You are participants in injustice, it is huge. If you want to think about what's being pervaded from pulpits all across this country, and white pastors, not just black pastors, but white pastors, Hispanic pastors, all kinds of pastors, making the claim that you, if you look in the mirror and you are perceived as not being black or a uh, person of color, right, a POC, then you, right, are guilty. And I, just a big claim. And as a Christian, I'm thinking, okay, if we're all guilty here, uh, I think at a Bible church, if the whole point is sharing the gospel so that we're not guilty and, and confessing, repenting, and, and, and moving forward, then I, I, I would think at a church we should talk about that. Okay. All right. We need to talk a little bit about the tributaries. Let me give you six tributaries of this modern CRT movement, and all of these are going to be very uh, cursory, but at least it'll give you categories if you'd like to dig a little deeper uh, to say, okay, where, how did we get here? How did we get here? Um, and, and, and it's not just, oh, because America had a, uh, a, a, a practice of, of kidnapping, which is really the sin in the text of Scripture, the kidnapping and bringing people here of a certain color, ethnic background, and uh, uh, enslaving them as property in our country. That, 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 that's a historical reality in every culture around the world um, and, and so the question isn't, what was the history of America, right? The question is, how did we get to the place where we have pastors all over the country saying you're in sin, and if you're going to join our church, you'd better admit that and, and rectify this because of this thing uh, called uh, uh, white privilege, systemic racism, structural injustice. Um, if that's the case, and if you get it, by the way, then you're woke. There's the word. We didn't define all the words that are related to this. This would take a series, but um, and, and if you get it, you're woke. Good. You accept the guilt. You see the injustice. You know that you're a sinner. Uh, and even if you say it and spout it, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. You, you maintain that guilty position. Well, where did this all come from? I'll give you six contributing factors. Let's start with Marxism. Uh, you'll hear this if you hear anybody try and analyze this movement. It does have to, at least at some point, come back to Karl Marx, the German philosopher of the 19th century, He's the father of modern communism. And basically, if you remember anything from school on this or have refreshed your memory in recent days and analyzing a little bit what's going on in our culture regarding uh, race, uh, as they call it, uh, you know that it, there has to be some reminder of how we got to this place of taking people and dividing them up into parties, into groups, into categorizing groups. And this was an economic view of rich people being bad. They are the oppressors, right? And they are oppressing other people. And, and they're oppressing other people that don't have the money. And if they don't have the money, they don't have the power. If they don't have the power, 
uh, then what we need to do is make everything equal within society so that everyone has the same money, the same income. Money of the rich should be taken away from them, right? Like, like Robin Hood here, and I'm going to redistribute that as a government to the poor. And to do that, the government has to own all the property. And of course, the money is made through the companies and, and manufacturing, industry, so all that needs to be run by the government. Right? And now you think, okay, well, I understand that. That's, that's this communism, right? And, and socialism a step toward that. But the idea of a nation that is run by a government who owns everything, they control everything, they control the philosophy and the economics and the industry, and they are going to seek to try and give everyone the same because the inequity of someone having more than another person creates oppression. And, and, and that's a power differential as they call it, economically, and we need to fix that through everyone having the same. Okay, uh, Communism, Karl Marx, Marxism. There was something called the Frankfurt School that took place in Germany and made its way back to America, to Columbia University, as uh, Hitler came to power, and that's a whole other story, but you can research the Frankfurt School, uh, and there are names associated with the Frankfurt School, Max... Uh, Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno and Herbert uh, McCruse, who's pictured here, they were very popular in taking this Frankfurt School, as it was called. The applied, um, they, they took the principles of Marxism and applied it beyond economics. Okay, Karl Marx was all about trying to uh, even out the economic structures, which has never worked in, in history, and nor is it biblical. And by the way, I should step out of this and say, if you want a biblical refutation of communism, uh, you should read Wayne Grudem, very good book on uh, politics according to the Bible. It's a very fat book, but read about private property rights, where it comes from, uh, biblical concepts of market and capitalism. Uh, I think it was Grudem also that started to write a book of the primer he wrote that I read called Business to the Glory of God. Uh, Marxism is not biblical, has nothing to do with political, right-leaning, whatever, uh, but politics according to the Bible will touch on it and deal with the issues that are foundational to why Marxism is not a biblical concept and, and uh, that capitalism has its roots in biblical principles and certainly is provided and supported by biblical truth. Um, and uh, his, his book, uh, Business of the Glory of God, I never know if he got, because in the book he states he's going to write a bigger tome on that, which I don't know if he ever wrote, and you can look that up. But um, Business of the Glory of God, uh, both of those are helpful. Nevertheless, Frankfurt School said, let's go beyond this. Let's be critical of all the social structures. Let's be critical of art. Let's be critical of, of education. Let's, be, let's take a critical look, a very careful analyzing look at everything in society, and let's take this concept of oppressor and, and oppressed, and we're just going to find it everywhere we can. And, and it's going to be found in everything, in music, uh, every aspect of culture. Uh, the Frankfurt School said, let's take Marxist principles and drive them into analyzing all of culture. And the goal was, just like in Marxism economically, is to seek to achieve total societal equity. And, and which is, by the way, the word that changed instantly with a new president. The old president, right, we talked about equality, then we shifted to the word equity, and it became the talking point throughout the government because this is the reflection of the Frankfurt School concept, just like it is with uh, Marxism, which is everyone has to have the same thing. The equal outcome is equity. Right? Equality is everyone's treated the same, and you have an opportunity with the underlying structure of capitalism and private property and meritorious achievement. Everyone can do whatever they want, and no one's going to be held back because of a prejudicial negative thought about who you are. No, you can't come because you're Asian, or you can't be a part of this because you're short. That, that would be 
equality, but equity was, no, we've got to maintain that there's equal outcomes, right? There should be the equal number of men in prison as there are women in prison, if you really want to drive this point, that you should have the equal number of, of, of people from uh, whatever state driving, you know, uh, Rolls Royces. There should be equal numbers of all that. Um, the, the equity now in terms of how people get recording contracts and uh, what kind of things we read and listen to, all of that now in the social structures of the culture, they said, let's find equity. So Marxism, Frankfurt School, coming out of Germany and running to America. Uh, then we have something called liberation theology. This is Oscar Romero. He was the Bishop of San Salvador and El Salvador in Central America, not far from Guatemala, where we uh, have our Compass Bible Church uh, there. Liberation theology in the end of the 1900s was a Catholic movement, South America and Central America. Uh, and the church now was enlisted by Catholics uh, saying we, what we need to do is we need to stop poverty, right? Because in Central America and South America, we have so much poverty uh, and we need to fix social injustice. And we need to try to find and achieve social equity. So basically, they said, okay, much like Marxism with the, the economics and much like the Frankfurt School with everything as it relates to culture, that's what we need to accomplish. And the church is the way to get that done. And so uh, folks like this, leaders in, in churches, Catholic churches, said, uh, we're going to fix all that. We're going to liberate you from oppression whether it's the oppression of being looked down upon because of who you are or what barrio you live in, what area you're from, uh, whether it's your money, we're gonna, we want equality. We want communal living. We want to equality in what you have, what you own, what you, you, what you possess. Everyone should have the same everything, and the church's mission is to do that because I can take words like justice from the Bible, and I can take words like compassion from the Bible, and all of these things I can utilize then to accomplish the issues of equity. Uh, not meritorious achievement, uh, which, again, there's so many biblical things I want to say in response to all these, but I can't. Trying to give you the tributaries for this movement. Okay, that was taken a step further in America by men like James Cohn, who I've already quoted. Columbia University, Union Theological Seminary in, uh, in New York. And he basically, as I've already quoted him, said, well, this is really about inequity among blacks and whites. And so what we want is a black theology and a black, he was a promoter of black power. We need to empower black people in America and we need to fix um, the inequities there. And, and of course, because his black liberation theology, James Cone, as, as a, a supposed pastor, is saying what we need to end is white Christianity because Christianity is a white thing, which of course, you know, this is all very focused on the, the provincial American experience. Right? It goes beyond that, but out of that South American, Central American view, this, this mission of black liberation theology said, we've got to fix this. We've got to make up for past black oppression, which, by the way, is where we're at in the modern discussion, even within churches, and it's more than just having equal outcomes, and I could say that that's what, you know, we shifted from equality, everyone's treated equally, right? Like the old Martin Luther King concept that you, we're not going to judge people by the color of their skin, but the content of their character, right? That is, we're way past that now to, you know, everyone now has to have equal everything, Frankfurt School, Marxism. And, and now it's like James Cone set us up for what we hear in pulpits today, which even if we achieved equity, that's not enough. As some black preachers will say, you know, why should the white person be the judge of what I as a black person have? Uh, matter of fact, we need to make up for the past. We need 
to rule. We need to conquer. If you said, okay, I just want, if, that, if it's about equality, I guess we'll forget the Asians for a while because they seem to be doing all right, but we'll, we'll have as many. Uh, I mean, that's how this goes, you understand. And I don't mean to be flipping on any of this because I know not everyone's going to agree with what I'm going to say this morning, but if I say, well, okay, we're going to have an equal number of, of, of black people and white people and maybe even Hispanics on this board or in this faculty or in this leadership structure, that's not enough anymore. Now it's like, well, it wasn't that way before. It needs to be reversed, right? That's why the discussion of reparations is so important today among Christians, uh, not just secular society, because we need to do some, some fixing. We need to do some catch-up on all this. So we're going to fix economic and social uh, inequalities, and we're going to do that by magnifying black power. Blacks need to dominate. And you can see this in other areas, you know, uh, Malcolm X or, or um, you know, the Black Panthers or... Um, you know, um, Islam, uh, what's the Islam, Nation of Islam, all of these, you know, become very, um, to use the old definition, racist against other groups. And we'll look at that. Matter of fact, yeah, we'll look at that. If we have time. You're going to be here till lunch, right? At noon. Tributary number five, postmodernism. Right? It is, in other words, I'm just saying that the perfect storm for what we have going on now has come from these things, right? Marxism, uh, the Frankfurt School, liberation theology, uh, black liberation theology, and, and then postmodernism. Let's start with this now, postmodernism. Postmodernism is a philosophical belief, right? And postmodernism comes after the modernistic period, and the modernistic period was what was going on uh, like right after World War II when it was like, okay, baby boom and technology, and we got phones and radios and TVs, and so we were going to fix everything by technology. Well, then it was like, well, that doesn't fix everything. We've got the same old problems like we're reading in Ecclesiastes every morning, and, and so vanity of vanity. So now we need something else, and uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to decentralize abstract propositional truths, and now it's going to be that there really is no organizing truths Right? There is no uh, absolute truth. There's no hard-edged truth on reality. Uh, as we talk about in terms of philosophy and apologetics and truth, there's, there's no uh, correspondence theory of truth, that we're corresponding statements that I say are true based on things that are objectively true. Right? Uh, we're going to personalize truth in story. Your story is valid. That's why so much of this whole CRT movement is based on you listening and hearing the hurt and feeling the hurt. And so much of the commentary, even in modern news, is all about you hearing what people have said. And you got to hear me. you got to feel it. you got to get my story. Because your story, then, is you being authentic, and I've got to stand back and go, well, that's true. Right? It's like Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey at whatever uh, uh, awards gala that was, saying, well, everyone needs to tell their truth. This is my truth. When you started to have those words connected to the word truth, Right? It's based on story, whatever your experience is in your story, and truth then became rooted in story. And as I've taught on this before, it, I watched it as a kid as we went from the State of the Union, Union addresses where people stood up, you see a president standing up and talking statistics and analyzing ideas and, and, and geopolitics and, and foreign policy. And then it became that we started to punctuate that with, okay, stand up in the balcony, we have so-and-so here and this person here, is, and then we tell their story. No, there's nothing wrong with telling a story to illustrate truth, right? And, and that is partly what... I think, well-motivated that. We see it in the Bible, tearing parables, para, next to balo, to throw. We're throwing a story alongside of the truth to highlight it, to illustrate it, to prove it, to apply it. All that's fine. 
But when truth then became, you can't argue with that because there's suffering in that life, and therefore whatever they had as a beef, we got to have it as a beef. That became the standard. Story became truth because it's authentic expression of someone's pain, and that personalized truth, my truth, got to tell my truth, my story, right? It doesn't even matter objectively. Matter of fact, if everyone has their own truth, it doesn't matter what you think of my truth. My truth is valid. And because I'm using the word truth, right? It, it must stand and you must respect it. And not only that, you must respond rightly to where I, how, how I want you to respond to, to my story. You've got to feel, you've got to empathize with me, right? Which can be taken to a place of complete unbiblical emphasis. You, we, we call it you know, in the scripture, compassion, spelanchthon, the Greek word, I can feel that. But now it's like, not only do I feel your pain, but I have to, I have to rightly enter into your experience and I have to affirm that that's true, whatever makes you feel bad. Because bad is the bad and, and, and if it feels bad, it's bad. And if it feels good, well, then it's good. And what's gonna help, what, what will make you feel good? Well, then that's the truth. You can't argue with that experience. And that's what we see in social media. And it's why it's an absolute you know, tripe, and it's, it, it, it's, it's useless to argue on social media for 99% of the time because people don't, they don't want stats, they don't want any of that. They want you to, to affirm other people's truths in their stories. As uh, Schaefer said, and he so well said it in, in the last generation, we're going to see a time when truth is so uh, atomized into people's individual experiences that you can no longer talk about truth unless you qualify it with, well, I'm talking about true truth, right? He, and, and Schaefer said that well. What is the true truth? And by that, I mean, what corresponds with some objective reality? When story is the basis, we got a hard time. Can't judge other people, right? They love that verse, by the way, right? Don't judge lest you be judged. So the end of it is there's no absolute right or wrong, right? And you can, you can in that kind of, of, of relativistic philosophy of postmodernism, right? You can believe anything. Whatever you want to believe, you can believe. It has been the foundation, by the way, for even the Pentecostal movements, charismatic movements, this emotional movement within theology where people are just invited to kind of feel their way through the Christian life, as I often say, instead of think their way through the Christian life, because you've got to think about things that are objectively true based on the revelation, as Schaefer would say, that propositionally have been revealed to us. That has to govern my thinking, should govern my experience. So, so much of postmodernism we even see in our theology. Well, we're past that now. This is the sixth uh, con contributing factor. I think it's six, right? Number six. Uh, we'll call it hard postmodernism. Uh, Pluckrose, um, book, we'll, I, I'll put a couple titles up at the end of all this, um, talked about this um, hardening of postmodernism. Uh, Owen Strand um, speaks in, in different terms. His terms don't matter because, let me tell you, matter to Owen, sorry, Owen, but they, the idea of, of we need to know that postmodernists move past your truth, my truth. Because if that were the case, relativism, I guess, is fine. It hurts me in evangelism because I start talking about, hey, there's a heaven and hell and you better respond to Christ or you're going to go to hell. Well, oh, that's good for you. And you've heard plenty of people say that. But in the old days of postmodernism, that relativism is like it just frustrated our advance of the truth of the gospel. Well, now that's not 
it. Now it's, as I put up here on this graphic, right? If you don't join with me in saying what I'm telling you to say, right, then you are violent against me. That's why the whole movement in postmodernism has been you need to become an anti-racist. If I think you're racist, and, and that just is being a part of a society and having the wrong skin color, then you better join in me in condemning yourself and condemning all the other people with your color skin. And if you don't, then you're wrong. You, we, we, if you don't put a, a black square up on your Instagram or whatever, then you are violent if you don't speak up. And there are people in our church, trust me, church our size, and I've got stories that people have been fired from their jobs in our church because they weren't willing to put up a, like a BLM sticker on their social media, or they weren't willing to say the right thing during the last uh, two years, and they're gone. They're, they're, they're being fired. This is hard postmodernism. This is the zeitgeist or the spirit of today's culture. This is where we are. This is where everything has come together through Marxism, Frankfurt School, liberation theology, black liberation theology, postmodernism, and now it's like, okay, we've got stories, and here's the prevailing story based on who's the social elite of our day, and you'd better affirm it. If you don't affirm it, uh, then we've got serious problems. We're going to enforce compliance of our view. And if our view is, like Keller would say, that you're guilty of injustice, whether you know it or not, just because you're the wrong skin color, you'd better comply with what we're saying. Or as, as Tisby said to Warren, uh, you shouldn't even let them in your church. They have to affirm what we're saying. You have to be, as Kendi says, Abram Kendi, you have to be an anti-racist. You have to join in our cause. Okay? You must support our experience. And that's why it's related to postmodernism. Because if my experience is I am being marginalized, I don't like the way, and I've heard this so much, right? I didn't get the job because of my skin color. I didn't get the job because of you know, where I was from. Well, that may or may not be true, right? But if you analyze it and say, no, let's talk to the boss. Here's the, the resume. Here's what he said. Here's the criteria. We punched you in the computer in terms of, of criteria. We hired this person instead because they were better suited for the job or some meritorious, you know, testing or whatever. It's like, well, I don't care. That's what I feel. I feel marginalized, right? If I don't act in support of that because that's become the collective mentality, well, then you need to be banned. You need to be fired. You need to be silenced. This is what we call, at least in the politics of talk shows, right? This is the cancel culture of our day. And, and all of this comes as a response to modernism getting hard. It gets, it, it gets enforceable. So you can't respond with analysis. Don't, I don't want to talk about stats or, or any of that. Uh, you have to hear us and join us, right? And that's how this works. And that's why you see all of these concepts of justice now, you gotta at, you gotta be with us, white silence. If you're white and not doing what Keller and, and, and uh, uh, what's his face there in, in Dallas, uh, Matt Chandler says, if you don't say what all the cool white pastors are saying now, right, then you are a violent person. That's white violence. Uh, and so this is, this is where we're at. And, and if you feel a little bit of this, right, then, then that, it, that's where our, our culture is. And the books that are, that are pushing this, the two big names at least that most corporate companies are trying to get people to read, even, you know, uh, Millie, the, you know, the in armed forces got to get our soldiers to read things about, you know, white rage, and you've heard all these headlines, but Robin DiAngelo making millions and millions of dollars, she believes in capitalism, trust me, that's why they put the gold sticker on her book, number one bestseller, um, you're not giving these books away. Uh, nor, I mean, you should see her costs for, for the corporate speaking she does. But White Fragility, if you've dealt with that book or, or have had any discussion, I mean, I, you can 
waste your time and read it if you want, but you're going to get a lot of what we just talked about. Or Abram X. Kendi, who's the guy, right? He's the darling of, of academia these days. And a million lesser known books that are constantly trying to redefine how everything is to be done in society. That's why test scores are not important, that kind of objective analytical evaluation of people. This is about their story and their feelings. And if you don't affirm that, you're in trouble. And all that's out there in the culture, and it's affecting pastors and churches. Okay, and that's why you can take books now by Christian publishers about things like prayer. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I, I'm gonna, hopefully I'm going to be free from any of this there. It's injecting us with everything, right? this, this philosophy, this hard postmodernism. Talk about silence is violence. Here's this book um, picked right off the shelf at Target, right? Dear God, help me, please help me to hate white people, right? Or at least want to hate them. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively, I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls and stop believing that they can be better, uh, that they can stop being racist. I want to stop believing that they can change. This is a book by a Christian publisher, by a quote-unquote Christian author. These things now are swallowed whole cloth because, of course, I get it, right? This is hard postmodernism based on liberation theology, black liberation theology, which, of course, you have to say this. And then we all say that's good because white people can't change. They're all racist. Even if you don't have prejudicial or superiority thoughts about your, the, the melanin in your skin. And, and this is, these are books handed out to Christians on how to learn to pray. Um, I mean, here's more of this book. It's just, it's, it's where it's all going. My prayer is that you would help me to hate other white people. You know, the nice ones, the, because they're hard if they're nice. The Trump news-loving, Trump, or the Fox News-loving, Trump-supporting voters who don't see color. You know, like the old civil rights movement philosophy, right? They, they, they love everyone. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they're Hispanic. It doesn't matter if they're Asian. It doesn't matter if they're black. I, I want to learn to hate them. And, and I just, this is a good book to help guide my prayer life. This is where we're at. Uh, and, and going, right? Lord, if it be your will, just more on this. Uh, if it be your will, harden my heart, which of course that's not his will, so stop praying that. Stop me from striving to see the best in people. Stop me from being hopeful that white people can do better uh, and do and be better. Let me imagine them instead as white hooded robe standing in front of burning crosses. Um, so if you're looking for a book on prayer to give to someone, um, <laughs> this will stir them to love and good works right there. I'm just telling you, this is the world that we're living in. Uh, so, just to summarize, right? America's racist as a culture, even if you're not prideful or prejudiced. All ethnicities, if they don't have the same thing, then it's racist, right? Just like if, if your kids uh, at 16, 17, 18 go out and get a job in your home and they're making different amounts of money, that's racist. Uh, it, uh, or it's inequity. It's, 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 it's the lack of the kind of... of, of compassion that we should have. I and mean, even if one gets two jobs or paper routes or gets an education, it doesn't matter, right? There needs to be equality. The new goal is equality for everyone, equal possessions, equal experience. Uh, the old goal, everyone's treated equally. That's not the goal anymore. The new goal is equity is not enough, right? We're there, right? We need to now reverse it. James Cone is being implemented in pulpits today where white people need to get in the doghouse and serve their time now because of their skin color. Even though you didn't own slaves, you didn't, uh, you didn't abuse anyone, you don't have white supremacist thoughts, it doesn't matter. Because all white people are racist, you oppress, you persecute people of color just by being the color that you are, uh, you've got more advantages, all people of color are victims, they're all oppressed, they're all persecuted. There's a summary 
of this all, right? There ought to be the same number of all ethnicities in the best colleges. There ought to be the same number of ethnicities on all sports teams, right? Not, right? If you're white, you should go try and join, you know, the Lakers and see, hey, you should get, there should be a quota for, for short white guys. That, that's not going to, that's not going to happen. Um, but I'm just saying, the idea is, in theory, we want this theory, but don't start talking to me about an analysis and objectivity. We're going to do this the way we want, which now is uh, the reversal of what they view is um, um, uh, an advantage that you have based on your past. It doesn't have to do with how much you've done or meritocracy is gone. Merit-based advance. All right, you have all the power. You need to give up your power. That's what uh, Chandler's telling you. We need to give, I just need to take guys and, and fire them if they're the wrong skin color and hire people that are of a different skin color. You, uh, people of color, by the way, can't be guilty. Uh, they are victims inherently, uh, and that is the message. They can't be racist because they don't have power. And so they're victims no matter what, even if they are at the top of the chain. That's why Michelle Obama can get on the news and talk about how she's afraid of her daughter walking down the street while being black, even though she's living in Martha's Vineyard or wherever she lives. And all of, it doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States, if you're the wrong color, you are a victim and you can never oppress, you can never be guilty of any kind of prejudice. Being white is bad, you should be hated, you should hate yourself, you should work to be less white. Right? This is the movement. This is what pastors are teaching, right? Because this is the culture. To be less white, you need to be less assertive. You need to be less certain. You need to be less powerful, less defensive, less ignorant, right? I'm getting this right off of their talking points. You need to agree with all claims of oppression, no matter what it is, just like the old day, uh, you know, if it's the right person like Brett Kavanaugh, who's, uh, you know, trying to get on the Supreme Court, believe all women, till of course it doesn't work in another scenario, well then that's okay because we're postmodern. There is no objective application of rules. Um, but if it works, then believe all claims of oppression. You need to stop expecting results for achievement. That's the meritocracy that most people have understood that you get in the position of leadership because of your merit, which is unequally distributed, right? God, what do you have that you did not receive? Anybody sees any difference in you to quote the Bible now? Uh, those are the blessings of God. Some people are blessed with more, some people are blessed with less. Uh, some people choose not to make the most of what they've got. All of those things we would recognize as we studied last week from this platform are gifts of God, the common grace of God, the goodness of God in getting people uh, to experience the results of their application of the power that God gives them. But we shouldn't work that way, right? It doesn't matter what you've done. You should have the same as what the person has done who's worked the hardest. You should accept the guilt of America's past. You need to hate whiteness and be prejudiced against it in every way. Like Chandler says, I should be, if you're white, the wrong color, and you go to uh, interview for a job at his church, you should be passed over based on your color because we're trying to make up, as James Cohn, James Cohn says, for past injustices. Okay. Um, here's the foundation of true racism, by the way. Here's the foundations of true racism. Real racism. Okay? And, it, and it is something that I can understand as the secularists out there deal with their own problems, they should be dealing with the problems that they themselves have created by their origin theories. And their origin theories always say, well, okay, we kind of evolved through the slime and being, you know, the rats that we were, and then we became, you know, uh, we became flying reptiles or whatever, and finally we got here. Well, the, the entire basis of true racism, which is my race is superior to your race, those are their terms, not mine, um, it all came from the, 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 the explosion 
of, of a new way to look at this world, a naturalistic way to look at this world that believes in complete folly that somehow we got here on our own, right? And, and so when you see even old uh, evolution textbooks, you see pictures of the people on the textbooks, which should give you some sense of why when evolution and natural selection became the basis of our philosophical thinking through Freud and so much of what we saw in philosophy beyond uh, Darwin, all of this, right, birthed in society true racism. And, and, and that's why even in the Frankfurt School, a reaction to uh, and a continuation of reaction to what, what was going on in Nazi Germany, right? I can understand, I can at least understand that there's real racism in that. And it all started really, at least popularized, and start with, but it was popularized in Darwin. And you know his book, The Origins, uh, The Origin of Species, right? By means of natural selection. Well, here is his subtitle, all right? His subtitle is The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. So the concept of a nation or a culture intellectually in the academy, reacting to racism, I get that. And I think you need to respond to that, right? And America did respond to that at some point. I mean, not perfectly, of course, because there was a belief, and it's still existing in the academy, which they live in complete uh, opposition to their own basis of, of theory of where we came from. They constantly said that people that are different than us in terms of their melanin are they are of, of lesser humanity, right? That there is that, that was where we were, right? And, and here's some basic charts that I just got from a late 19th century chart that shows the racial stages of evolution. And, and that was what Darwin was trying to talk about is how did we get here that the favored races of, of, of white Caucasians became uh, the great people that we are, right? So there is a life that is less than human, uh, Leben und Wurzstes Leben. This is the, the, the German phrase that was utilized in Nazi Germany that described life that is unworthy of life. This concept of Darwinism and natural selection leading to favored race uh, analysis of people, right, led Hitler to go, okay, well then here we are, these, as the Mormons would say, thoroughly racist theology in its origin. The, the white and delightsome among us are the pinnacle of evolutionary progress. And so Hitler just simply applied this. And all of the propaganda, right, was basically that, that if you are less than us in terms of your, your appearance, right, well, then you are, you are a, a lesser race. You are life that is not worthy of life. And the Jews, of course, you can't read German, right, are the, are the bastards of all of these lesser uh, cultural ethnicities, right, these, what they would call races. The races are conflated in the Jews, and therefore the Jews are the worst. They're the rats of, 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 of humanity, and they need to be excised. And so they taught based on how you look. Here's a classroom, literal classroom of what do people look like, and we know that they are lesser than us. And at some point, you draw a line and say, at least let's start with the bastard Jews and say they need to be exterminated from the earth based on the fact that they're not worthy of life because they're not really evolved the way that we are. And that's why all of their propaganda was about looking at these, these, if you can read um, German, the races of the world, Europe and its bordering areas, they kept looking at how people looked and said, okay, we're going to rank them and we're going to understand that if you are of this color or of this shape, even of the shape of your nose, there's an actual picture of measuring people's widths of their nose to figure out whether or not you were evolved as far as we are. And of course, we want to we, we want to acknowledge this. Of course, some races are superior to others. That's how they went about their 
their, their philosophy of creating the utopian society. This was in schools, this was all a part of the curriculum, and this, of course, follows naturally and logically after your assumption that we got here through the evolutionary process from a single-celled amoeba, through all the processes of natural selection. Now, of course, we, we need to realize that we have favored races, as Darwin would put it. So life that is unworthy of life. This became part of what we have in America in the founding of, for instance, Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger, we had this concept of eugenics. Uh, you in Greek, the participle is good, good genes. What we want is the good genes of the favored races, and we want to see, Darwin said, how we got the favored races to be here, and now we need to establish the favored races, and this became a part of society. Like, here's some propaganda from uh, the uh, News Volk, New People um, magazine. This is the periodical, and it was from the Office of Race Politics in Germany. And here's a guy, of course, that is in, uh, he, he's like uh, my daughter in the sense that he got paralyzed, right, from the knees down. And it says this, the English translation of this is, this person uh, suffering from a hereditary defect cost his community in his lifetime uh, 60,000 Reich marks, right? And, and so we need to fix this. We need to get rid of those that are less than, just like we're doing in America today, right? Like when my daughter was diagnosed as having spina bifida in the womb, the doctor immediately told me, you've got to abort her, which is why spina bifida is plummeting. Down syndrome is plummeting around the country because we're killing all of these children because like we have in, uh, in the Third Reich, what we have is a gradation of favored races and we have life that is worthy of life and life that is unworthy of life. Uh, so the American Eugenic Society said, we're improving the genetic composition of humans through controlled reproduction of different races and classes of people. Now again, it's just amazing how the foundation for all that is truly racist comes from evolutionary theory, eugenics, all of this is massively affirmed today. Whether it's the right for you to kill your children, uh, based on whether there'll be a hardship or whether or not they're, they're good enough for you, and the concept of that we are a natural product of random acts of natural selection. All of that right, is, is what we still affirm, and yet we are now working overtime to say, let's not believe any of this racist stuff. Um, here's Margaret Sanger, and this was a positive statement. Right? We want, in our, in, our, in our culture, quality, not quantity. And she was speaking for America, right? Founder of, of, of this whole thing. Birth control was all about that. We want quality, and we're going to try to go and fix our country, which was an exact American uh, reflection of the life unworthy of life philosophy of Nazi Germany. Uh, here's some of, you know, we talk about Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, the woman in the new race, right? She founder of Planned Parenthood. Birth control, she said, is not a con contraception indiscriminately and thoughtlessly practiced. And the whole point of trying to get people you know, uh, to, to not have children when they have sex, not just for the fact that we're going to try and make sure you time this right, it means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society. Right? We should have less black people, we should have less Hispanics, we should have less Jews in our culture. Right? The gradual suppression and elimination and eventual uh, expiation of the, of the defective stocks. Right? Uh, we, want, we want it done right? to, to extirpate, to get it out, to root it out. Uh, those human weeds which threaten the, the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. We want those white, as the Mormons would say, the fair and delightsome human beings in society to be there. We don't need the human weeds of black people in our society. Right? This was the whole point 
of what they were trying to do in the eugenics movement here in America. Uh, and it was part of what we saw rise up in um, Germany, of course, in a horrific way. Not that we haven't, we can kill as many, what do they kill? At least they're saying six million Jews, uh, maybe more, and there were more of other ethnic groups in Nazi Germany in a short period of time. In seven years in America, uh, we will abort over six million babies. So it, 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 we're doing the same thing for even lesser philosophical reasons. Uh, and, but sh how this all started, right? Planned Parenthood started, which is our baby-killing factory, to fix the races. That's why she, just do a little research, was all about white supremacy. And, and I get it. That's something that I think everyone would say they're against. Funny how they still want to claim Margaret Sanger, although some groups are now moving away from her. But she was out there promoting what is true racism. That's the roots of it. That's real racism. This is all based on the philosophies that you simply logically apply as the extension of rejecting Genesis chapter 1, God's direct creation of human beings, human beings that were made in God's image. This is not true. It never has been true. What is true is there is one race of people. And let me make that super clear. The church has always taught that. That has always been the teaching of Scripture. It doesn't mean that it's been consistently taught by every preacher because a lot of preachers don't rightly understand God's Word and they preach wrong things from the Word. I've given you plenty of examples that relates to this topic today. But the Bible's very clear. Uh, there are many kinds, look at this now, of plants and animals. Look at Genesis 1.11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, according, each according to its own kind on the earth. And so it was. So lots of kinds of plants and animals. Here's animals. Now, God said, let the water swarm with swarming living creatures, with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above and the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. So we got great sea creatures and not so great sea creatures. Why? Because there's different kinds of them in which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the gradation in birds and the gradation in, 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 in fish and, and, and sea life, all of that, God said, here there are different kinds. Fruits, right? Avocado, obviously at the top of the chain of the God's greatest fruit. And, and we have all of them now. There's, there's clear superiority in the kinds. Okay, uh, but guess what? God makes human beings, and He says there's one kind. I mean, follow the, even the, the Hebrew language in this. There's one kind of human being, right? That we, humankind, we call it later after because if we're biblically informed, we have one kind of person, right? Humankind, right? And, and they both reflect equally God's pinnacle of creation. At the top of creation, there is gradation. He now has people. And in that category, of course, he assigns them different roles, even among male and female, but there's one kind, only one kind of person, and that's it. Natural selection and evolution clearly presents a different philosophy, which you might say that's what's going on in uh, this whole movement of CRT as we're reacting to that. Well, really, it seems to be they're attacking us, in, in particular, Christians, and now we have pastors attacking Christians, who have tried to always say, no, we believe in one kind of person. And that variety within mankind is based on how God created us as human beings. He creates all this data, which is a huge, huge library, a volume of data on, on, on these, these, these uh, DNA molecules, fuel, full of all the information you need for human life. And within reproduction, human reproduction, there's all of this variation within it. Right? Well, those got increasingly distinct because of uh, the Chet Holyfield uh, Federal Building. No, 
uh, because of, of a, a, a building that looked like this, by the way, a, a ziggurat, right? I just show you that, that we've made a ziggurat here in South County. Not that there's any spiritual problem with building a ziggurat. I'd like to buy it, actually, and move our church in there. It would be awesome. So if you know anyone that can hook us up with that, and you got about $300 million, that'd be a, a cool church. I'd paint it a different color, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, and maybe I wouldn't want to have it because it, it should remind us of, of the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel was a ziggurat, and God was done with them trying to unify, saying, we're all that, which is the problem when you have this kind of ability to unify one language, one people. And God did something. He dispersed them. So purposely took people and said, now you're going to now go have children over here and you over here. Disperse them from the face of the earth. And he left off the building of this city at Babel. Therefore, the name was called Babel. Babel means it's an onomatopoeia. It, it sounds like what it is, and that is that it sounds like everyone is babbling. We can't understand them. The Lord confused their language right, of all the earth, and from that, there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And so even as the ancient maps of the world said, we split them from this Middle Eastern place, the middle of, of God's attention, to all these corners of the world. And when you did, right, you see that God is now creating these families within these national confines based on their language, right? And, and, but they're all the same. They're still one people. They're still one kind. He made from one man, uh, every nation of mankind, there's our word, one kind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, right? And it's constantly affirmed. Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. So all of these people in mankind are all God's human beings reflecting his image. Right? And so then the Bible says, well, if that's the case, of course, unlike you know, dolphins uh, you know, dissing on jellyfish, that should never happen among people. There should never be ethnic pride right? or ethnic prejudice. And I'm always going to use the word ethnic, by the way, because there's only one race. If there's only one race, I'm not going to say you're of a different race than me. No one is a different race. Right? We're all, if you're a human being, right, and I don't believe in evolution, then of course you are made in the image of God. You possess full worth and dignity. And all of us can never say, well, because I have long hair or I have hair or whatever it is you have, you have bigger muscles. Well, then you're more of a person than me and you are somehow worthy of your pride as an as a, as a human being inherently, okay? I mean, th that's the problem. We, we, ethnic pride and, and, and ethnic prejudice is always prohibited by the creator, always. So no matter what your baby looks like, no matter what your skin tone is, all of it. And I do mean all of it in any direction. You cannot have ethnic, James Cone cannot have ethnic pride. You just can't. Or, or, or guys like this, this dude, uh, and I forget his name, what's his name? Written the Cannon, Nick Cannon, right? Uh, America's Got Talent guy. Look at how this, this is clearly coming out of this James Cone, not that he's claiming Christ, he's really studying a lot of the, uh, the, the black theorists. But he says, when we talk about the power of melanated people, which is not a word, melanated people, we talk about who we are as gods, right? And understand that our melanin is power. That's the reason why whites fear blacks, right? That, that, that's it. Melanin produces soul. Right? People that don't have it are a little less. Okay? So now we've just reversed all this. Of course, Nazi Germany, Margaret Sanger, eugenics, all of that was, okay, well, you look more like an animal to me, so I think you're less than me. And now here is the movement of the black supremacy, 
a lot of what came out of black liberation theology and the application of that in our day of saying now, even we've got people saying, well, of course we should give reparations, we should give power, you should uh, defer and give up your power, all of that. Now, guys like Nick Cannon are going, yeah, well, that's because you're a little less. They didn't have the power of the sun, and that started to deteriorate them. So then these people, these white people, who didn't have the melanin that we had, right? they had to be savages, they had to be barbaric, because they're in these uh, Nordic mountains, right? Uh, they're in these, these rough torrential environments. So they're acting as animals, right? Because they're less than. They're the ones who are actually closer to animals. They're the ones that really are the true savages. <laughs> this whole discussion of different races is in every direction in the past has become a problem. And in the current day, it's inverting itself to where now not only are you guilty because of injustice systemically in your past, Right? But you've got some people, I know this is extreme, but you have some people, and I've been in situations and in meetings where this concept comes up, that there is an advantage not only to be given to make up for past disadvantages, but there is something inherently better that, that I need to see, and, and you take it from a secular perspective, because you're less human than I am based on the color of my skin. Well, here's the thing. We all have melanin. <laughs> we all have melanin. We, we ha are made up of the same stuff. We all have the same components. You may have it in different quantities, but we are all one kind. There's not like you're the jellyfish and you're the dolphin. Okay, here's what we need to remember. The Bible says there's no partiality that God shows. He does not care whether you're white, doesn't care if you're, you're yellow, or if, I don't even know, that's, is that racist? Asian, doesn't care if you're Hispanic, doesn't care what you are. He doesn't care what, if you're black, he doesn't care. Any, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, here are the rules, right? And you need to follow them. There are white people going to hell. There are black people going to hell. There's Asian people going to hell. There's Native Americans going to hell. They're all, based on, did you respond to what I told you to do? And when we get to handing out 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, when we start handing out rewards, those are going to be handed out based on what you have done. I've told you what to do. Have you responded? Have you done what I've told you to do? That is not going to be based on, well, you know, you're a different color. And if you say, well, I, I, I felt like, I felt like, I felt like, it's not about your feelings, right? It, it, I understand there are some that have more opportunity than others, right? All of us here had to have different opportunities, different opportunities to go to school, you know, right? My, my parents didn't have money to send me to any great colleges. I had to pay my way, just like some of you. Uh, you know, I got, I guess, the initial paid for in the first couple of years. But all of these kinds of things, it's all different based on all kinds of things. No one is going to excuse your response to God's revelatory instructions. God shows no partiality, right? There's no distinction. Here's another passage, Romans 10. Between Jew and Greek, same Lord is Lord of all. And that means he's the boss, he's in charge, you have to answer to him. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So the difference between salvation and favored and forgiveness and grace, all of that is based on your response to the gospel. But as for God, to quote Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Well, wait a minute. If I'm a slave in the Greco-Roman world, I don't have the advantages that a free man has. I understand that. And Paul said, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. But it doesn't matter. He tells the Corinthians, if you can do that, great. But don't care. It doesn't matter. It matters. Just worry about pleasing the Lord in whatever situation you're in. Right? If you can get freedom, get freedom. That's an advantage for your service to the Lord. If you can, and if not, Colossians 3, serve the Lord in whatever state you're in. Even as a slave, you should serve the Lord in whatever state you're in. 
and you should please the Lord by doing your responsibility biblically because God is not looking and saying, well, I'm going to give you an advantage because of your skin color or because of your ethnicity, because of the breadth of your nose or whatever it might be or the melanin in your skin. And I'm, not, I'm to do the same. No partiality. My brother's shown no partiality. Right? He says, you've made distinctions there in James economically among yourselves. And you became judges with evil thoughts. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And that works in every direction. I'm not supposed to advantage the rich, Leviticus says, and I'm not to advantage the poor. I can't do either. Well, you've been disadvantaged, so I'm going to give you a break. The Bible says I can't do that. I've got to look at what God requires, and I've got to, I've got to expect that. If you're going to fill out an application to work at the church, it should be based on your merit. That's what the Bible clearly says, the response of what you have done. And, and, and that's the way God is going to judge us. I should not show partiality, whether I'm going to get something or whether I'm going to feel something based on whether or not I give you whatever it is is in my power to give you. The goal of biblical Christianity is unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. That's the goal. That is not what's happening in modern evangelicalism because they're making distinctions based on what you look like, based on what your ethnic background is. And, and, and it doesn't even matter what your real ethnic background is. I've had people wag their finger in my face going, you've had advantage because you're white. I said, you don't even know anything about my background. You don't know anything about my genetics. You don't know anything about me. And yet they will make claims based on who I am and what advantages I have. They have no idea what my ethnic background is. They have no idea what my economic background is. They say, well, you're a little bit lighter than I am. So I clearly, right, the people have paid for your college. Well, that's not true. All I'm saying is our goal is not to try to find distinctions, certainly not superficial distinctions based on your ethnicity. That is prohibited in scripture. And the Bible says you make those distinctions, you're in sin. The focus and, and tenor of scripture is to have us unified is as mankind and as we worship in Christ, right? That's the only real distinction between people is whether you're saved or lost. That's it. And I want to emphasize that unity. I don't want to sit here and try to play to the partiality and distinctions that are being made by the world. Jeremiah 31, in those days you shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. The consequence for your behavior will be your behavior, not what your ancestors did. And that cannot be. Even if my ancestor didn't save any money and I inherited nothing and my parents were in debt because of what my grandparents did or my great-grandparents, what matters is now God says, in the state that you're in, born when you were born, to who you were born in, and the situation you're born in, and the ethnicity and your skin color, do what I told you to do. And if you sin, you will pay that penalty for your sin. I'm going to respond to you. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. My goal is to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If you're a Christian, I don't care what color you are, man. I, we should not care. Well, that sounds like Martin Luther King. Well, Martin Luther King is absolutely dismissed, right? Not that I'm ever affirming his moral character. That's another sermon. But the point is, if I am a part of even saying this, that, that it should not matter what your ethnic compo composite is, that is rejected today as racist. I have to be anti-racist, which means I've got to make distinctions, and I can't maintain unity. I have to make that kind of, of, of fractured diversification based on your background and give preferences and all the rest. It's not, the Bible says no. Unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit. It's talking now to Christians because this is infected the church. Right, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, it is about him. It is not about you. It is not about what you look like. 
and I quoted Leviticus, and I think I put it up here, yeah. Do no injustice in your court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. It doesn't work either way, right? But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and that means that you are forgiven. I don't bear guilt because Matt Chandler says I have it or because Keller thinks I, I have it. I do not bear guilt from someone else's sin, and I am someone, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And in CRT, there is no fixing this problem. I wish that I were so, uh, everyone were as I am. Paul was talking here about his marital status, but each has his own gift from God. One has one kind, one has another, right? God is giving gifts in various ways, and, and you know, if your marriage is bad, you may say, I wish I had the gift of singles. Paul says, well, you don't, and I do, and so... You know, that's just the way it is. Whatever your gift or advantage is, great. If there's anything different in you that you have and when it gives you an advantage, what did you, you received it, right? What do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? We give thanks to whatever advantage God gives us. That's called the blessing of God. Titus 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others, hating one another. This is the modern church. Lord, help me to hate white people. This is where we're living. That should be the past. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, the point of forgiveness is absolute. There is no forgiveness in CRT, and it's invading church. The social justice coming to church does not give you these truths. It's a different gospel, a different religion, and it is not something that we should ever advocate right? Because the point is that if we're sinners, right, we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and the point of Christianity, I can get beyond that. Such were some of you, but here's the point of Christianity. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You become a Christian no matter what your past or your ancestral past is, you get a fresh start, a new start, we start over. Some books for you to read. Um, if you want to go further on this, if this doesn't matter to you and you don't know what I was talking about because you live in a, in a hermetically sealed bubble, great. I hope you enjoyed breakfast. <laughs> but if this is bothering you, and in, in an hour and a half of Pastor Mike walking through this isn't enough, let me have you, give you some books to read. Brand new books out. One is by Owen Strand. I know it doesn't look like it's pronounced Strand, but it is pronounced Strand. His book just out called Christianity and Awokeness, very helpful, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. As, as this little tidbit says here of the book, Christianity and wokeness are not compatible. Christianity is the truth of God found in God's word. Wokeness, um, as, as, as we are at pains to say in this book, is a different religion altogether. And I would fully agree with, with what he's saying. It's a good analysis of it and helpful. Um, Bodhi Bakum in his book, Fault Lines, a Social Justice Movement and Evangelicals Looming Catastrophe. Uh, I, I, I hate to be the doom and gloomer, I know you think I like that, I don't, and I, I, I usually have some optimism, but man, it is bad when it comes to this topic, and, and the divide is, is built into the philosophy, and uh, this is a great book uh, that, that you ought to look at. I want this book to be a clarion call, I want it to unmask the ideology of critical theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, which means depending on how many uh, marginalized points you earn based on who you are, well then, uh, that's intersectionality, then you should be favored or advantaged in hopes that those who have been imbibed in it, who've taken this in, right, uh, have the blinders removed from their eyes. Uh, and those who have bowed uh, in the face of it can stand up, take courage, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And, and that's what I'm trying to do here this morning is to give you uh, a clear refutation in a short period of time and say, I reject this. I fully reject this. I 100% reject it. 
And if Tisby is going to convince big churches in our area that you've got to join a social justice movement and, and be a part of some aspect of CRT to join their church, I'm going to say, well, you don't have to do that here. As a matter of fact, if you do it here, we don't even want you to join here. We'd like you to change your mind about your understanding of these issues. And Fault Lines will help you. Uh, Christianity and Wokeness will help you. Uh, if you want some other books that go more into Marxism and the backgrounds of philosophy, it's a very short book. It's an easy read, but this is helpful. A New Toxic Religion um, by uh, Scott Allen and uh, Daryl Miller. And Stan Guthrie had some part in it. I don't know what his part in it was. Um, but understanding the postmodern neo-Marxist faith that seeks to destroy the Judeo-Christian culture of the West, I think this is a helpful book. And it's not hard to read, and it's simple, and we should get it in our... Uh, bookstore if you don't have it. And speaking of Scott Allen, he wrote another book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, an Urgent Appeal to Fellow Christians in a Time of Social Crisis. I think that's helpful. All those are Christian books from a Christian perspective, some hitting it head on, some hitting the backgrounds of it. One book I would suggest that is quoted in some of these books, um, and I did quote her, Helen Pluckrose, uh, and James Lindsay in a book. It's a non-Christian book from a non-Christian perspective. And again, the church is just dealing with this from an ethnic perspective. They call it a race perspective. Uh, but really all of this, Marxism, Frankfurt School, all of it really is the foundation for LGBTQ acceptance. And, and um, so Critical Theories, scratched out, Cynical Theories is the title of this book, is a scholarly uh, secular analysis of how we got here. So there's a lot of things about um, gender issues and gender study, but also race. And I think if you want to go deep, deeper still, lots of books I could suggest, but I would certainly recommend that. If you're saying, ah, I don't need to read any books, but uh, you know, I'd like to have something in print that says kind of what you're saying, I would at least let you, uh, I would have you look at the statement on social justice uh, that is out there. Several leading uh, evangelicals that reject CRT have uh, endorse this statement, and it's a good statement, several uh, affirmations and denials. It's called the Statement on Social Justice in the Gospel. You can find it at statementonsocialjustice.com. Don't need to sign it. I'm not big on signing statements, but uh, it's good to read, and it's good to have, and to look at what's being said uh, in this culture and rejecting it based on uh, biblical affirmations. And I wish I had more time for uh, Q&A today, uh, but we, we can't. But I, I wanted to dump all that on your lap. And I hope, I hope that it was helpful. Let me pray for you. And I'll let uh, Pastor PJ come back up. God, thanks for a chance for us to study your word, at least verses that we just quickly ran by to look at what's going on in our society and to understand the way that we just have to think rightly about our culture. And especially when it's invading at such high echelons and conservative evangelical circles, uh, reflecting what so much of what's going on in the philosophy of this world. And we need to, even as Pastor PJ said, be willing to tear down any argument that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And while a lot of this appeals to emotion and seems right because it seems compassionate and we've got to do something, I just pray, God, we would see what we need to do is to call people to repentance and faith, put their trust in God, put our arm around each other, and move forward in this culture, uh, caring about things that will matter and... Um, Eternally, what matters uh, is not what is perceived as some meritocracy, meritocracy that is uh, somehow leaving people marginalized, although, God, we're always for trying to give people a fair shake at everything. The reality is that there are lost people going to hell, and we need to focus on the fact that people made in God's image are worthy of our evangelistic effort, even as I'll teach tonight and tomorrow morning, Lord willing, uh, that, that great 
passage there in Acts 10, I pray that it would motivate us to care about people, look into their eyes and see them as air, uh, image bearers, no matter what their skin color is. And as Peter had to look at this Roman soldier, uh, eventually in the next section, he's going to uh, care about his soul. I want to care about people's soul. I want this group of men who are leaders in the community and in their businesses and in their homes to care about people's souls and to stop uh, pandering to the nonsense, if any of them are, or tempted to, of, of our cultural elites. And uh, God, I just pray this might help somehow establish us, as the Bible says, to be rooted so that we're not driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. And so, God, at least the people, even if they reject my teaching this morning, will know where we stand, and I'm not ashamed or afraid to say it. And I pray that, um, you know, if they're going to reject it, they reject it on good analytical, biblical, theological basis and be objective in their uh, analysis of what I've said this morning. Otherwise, God, I pray it would help to establish us in what's most important. And I pray that, God, for the good of our families, the good of our wives, our children, our friends, our people in our small groups, people that we lead and influence in our lives. So God, help us through this in Jesus' name. Amen.